0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Podcast. For more sermons and content, go to SojournMontrose.com. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, like you said, my name is Jake or Jacob, really whichever you prefer is fine. Um, and uh, I am currently a church planning resident at Sojourn Heights. And uh, I first met your pastor, Marshall, uh, a couple months ago before Sojourn Montrose was planted, when it was still just an idea, a conviction. And it's been really cool to see how God has worked and how God has used him and has built this new work in uh, the Montrose neighborhood. Um, I didn't grow up on a farm, uh, but my grandpa did have a compost heap. And... uh, If you don't know what that is, I didn't know either for a long time. And I always wondered, why does grandpa leave coffee grounds and eggshells on the counter? This doesn't make any sense to me because in my house, we threw those out. And one day I remember asking him, like, grandpa, what's the deal with all this? I don't get it. It's kind of gross. And so he said, come with me. So we walked outside. He had a bigger, bigger yard. And we walked into this back corner that I was told never to go to. And in this back corner, there was this giant pile. And he said, this is where I put all that stuff. And I said, Grandpa, like, why don't you just throw it in the trash? Like, you know, you can do that. And he said, but if I, if I throw all this stuff in this pile, that it may just start off as coffee grounds and junk and kind of stuff you don't want. But when it gets down here to the bottom, he said, it gives me better fertilizer than anything I can buy anywhere. And so I said, well, then let's get all the coffee grounds we can get. Because as a little kid, the idea of throwing stuff into a giant pile was really great to me. And uh, the reason why I tell you this story is because a a while ago I came across this quote. It's uh, by a lady by the name of Shauna Nyquist, and she wrote in this book. She said, I do not believe that God's up in heaven making things go terribly wrong in our lives so that we can learn better manners and better coping skills. But I do believe in something like composting for the soul, that you can find life out of death you can, you can be used to smash the garbage to bring about something new and good, however tiny. And that is one of the most beautiful things there is. And the reason why I bring this up and the reason why I say this is because we're coming now to the end of, really what is the heart of Paul's letter to the Romans. That he starts by just describing, man, we're in a bad spot. We're in a bad situation. That whether you're religious or not, none of us are doing very good. And then he transitions into saying that it doesn't matter if you're religious or not, the solution's all the same. And in chapters 4 through chapters 8, what he's doing is unpacking the gospel. He's dissecting it like you'd dissect a frog, so that we can understand every part of what God is doing for us in Christ. And as we experience these things, they're not just one by one, like I'm a Romans 4 Christian, but hey, you're a Romans 7 Christian, so you're doing pretty good. No, all of these come together. And all of these things are what God is doing to make us more like Christ. And now we've come to the end of that part. And last week we looked at how God through the spirit is applying this work of Christ to us, how he is raising us up to new life, that he's raised us spiritually, but he continues to raise us uh, in our character and making us more like Christ. And what's really interesting is when he ends that, in chapter eight, verse 17, he makes this really interesting statement that honestly, we're all tempted to read over, right? I would prefer if it wasn't there, just to be honest with you, because what he says is that we experience all of these things, that we're made children, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, and here it is, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. (laughs) Man, I... I can tell you I don't really like the fact that, oops, that I have to suffer with Christ in order to be made like Him. But if we're honest with ourselves, we can all recognize that right now we find ourselves not just personally, but in a universe that is groaning for glory. That every inch of this universe and every inch of us is groaning for for glory, that we want something better, that we recognize that this world is broken and we don't want it to stay that way. That every part of us is looking and longing for something to change and something to be different. And that's what he leads us through now as we come to, as we work our way through the latter half of Romans chapter eight, as he talks about how the spirit is working in us on the basis of what Christ has done. That this groaning isn't just something we have to deal with, but it is part of God making us like Christ. And Paul's going to go examine a couple things. And where he starts is by saying that it's not just us, that all of creation is groaning and longing for God. And that the reason that it's groaning, as we're looking now in verses 18 through 22, that the reason it's groaning is that it's waiting for that final liberation. It's waiting to be freed from what it's been subjected to because of our sin. He'll say here in verse 20 that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And we know that all the way back in the book of Genesis that when God created the heavens and the earth, he created it good. That after every day and every motion of God's creation, he stopped and said, it is very good. But because of our sin, because of what we did, that now that this, this physical universe that we find ourselves in is now subjected to the curse of our sin, that God even told Adam in Genesis 3, verse 17, that cursed is the ground because of you, and you will eat of it all the days of your life in pain that sin breaks things, sin makes things not what they're supposed to be, and it fractures the harmony that we are supposed to have. And so because of that, now creation has been put into this spot where it is itself groaning and longing. And Paul describes this in two different ways. He says, first, that it's longing anxiously. And number two, that it's waiting eagerly. And what he's trying to communicate, it's it's as if Creation, we're standing on its toes and straining its neck to get even just a glimpse of the glory that's to come. That it's just leaning forward with everything it has because it wants so bad to see what God is going to do. And it wants so bad for that day to come. It wants so bad for the day of glory to come. And you know, and we see the brokenness all around us just last week. Just mudslides in Washington that sadly killed people that earthquakes in California are now a way of life. And I've even heard that there's some people who say that there's supposed to be a super volcano in Yellowstone National Park that could potentially destroy all of North America, apparently. But we don't have to look very far to recognize that Man, creation is not, it's, it's not the way it should be. That everything around us is, is suffering from sin, and every bit of it is just groaning for glory, groaning for that day. Paul describes all this as the pain of childbirth. He says that this is what creation groans and suffers. It's like a woman in labor. And uh, Whitney and I have a six-month-old son, and I-, I can tell you I've never loved anything in my life like our son Noah. Uh, but I can also tell you that neither one of us really enjoyed pregnancy all that much. And I can admit that I didn't really have to bear the brunt of it. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't any easier for me than for Whitney. And I remember the last couple months that anytime she would wake up in the middle of the night with even just a small cramp, I would freak out and be, oh, crap, today is, the, is now it, thinking I'm going to have to find my way to the hospital at 2 in the morning. And I just wasn't uh, excited about that. I was constantly stressed, always wondering, when is this moment going to come? What is it going to happen? And uh, when that day finally came, we still spent 17 hours in labor. It was a long process, and it was difficult. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't have to experience the labor But the whole time I'm worried. I'm wondering, how's Whitney doing? Is she okay? Is there something I can do for her? How's Noah doing? Is he healthy? Is he strong? Is he going to get through this? Is there something wrong that we didn't know about? What's he going to be like? What's his personality? What's he going to look like? All of these questions constantly running through my mind and wanting to know what is he going to be like. And even despite all of that, all of that longing, all of that pain, as soon as he's here in an instant, man, it was so cool. It was so great. That for all these months, I had just been standing on my tiptoes, wanting to get a glimpse to peer into what will it be like when my son is here? What will it be like when I get to hold him? And just eagerly waiting for that. And now that he's here, I mean, yeah, there's some sleepless nights, there's blowout diapers, there's all that stuff. (laughs) But I wouldn't trade him for the world. Because all of that groaning and waiting and longing had finally come. And just like I, I, I stood there waiting, waiting for my son, picturing that moment, groaning for that moment. Paul says that creation is not just groaning for itself, but it's groaning for the moment when it gets to see our adoption as sons, our redemption, when we are brought back into the glory that God made for us. And that's exactly where Paul goes, because in verse 23, he changes. And what he, what's so interesting about why he's talking about creation is he's making an analogy. Because he'll say, in the same way, for you, right here in verse 23. That not only creation, but we ourselves, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly, for adoption as sons. And so just as creation groans and stands on its toes and hopes to catch a glimpse, so do we. We groan that, that pit in our stomach that just knows there's, there's something coming from me, something beyond this life, and I'm waiting for it, and I want it. He's saying just in the same way. We experience that. We, go, we groan through that. And it's interesting that so far Paul has connected these two words, groan and suffering, that he sees them together because he puts them in parallel to one another. And the reason why that's interesting is because when we look at the way the word groan is used in other places, it kind of starts to round out this idea and round out what is, all this groaning we're talking about, suffering. What does is, what is exactly Paul have in mind here? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says that we groan because we desire to put on our heavenly dwelling. And just two verses later, he clarifies that when he says that we groan because we desire to see our mortality swallowed up. In James chapter five, verse nine, he uses it in a different way. He uses it to say as a warning, don't don't grumble against each other. Don't complain against each other. And it's the exact same word. He's saying, don't don't fight with one another. Don't complain against one another. And in the gospel of Mark, we see Jesus using it. That when in uh, chapter 7, verse 34, it describes how Jesus goes to Bethany to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. And after everything, he stands in front of the tomb and Mark says that he sighed and said, be opened. And that word, he sighed, is this same word to groan, to grumble. And what we get is this picture that we are are desiring for mortality to be taken away, to be swallowed up in the call of Christ, to come out from death, to be freed from the constraints of our sin, and to be brought into life because he has called us out. Our mortality is gone. Our sin is gone. And what we are longing for is that freedom and it's that that inward desire that that guttural exasperation the desire for glory the longing for death to be undone that internal grumbling that pushes against the brokenness of my life and our lives in all of creation The thing is, this groaning is not all negative. Because look again at verse 23. I skipped over a part. He says this groaning is for those who, for those, I lost my place here, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So it's not just sort of this nameless, blind groaning, but it's the Spirit working in us, pressing us to glory. That it's part of what he has started by bringing us into the family of God, by justifying us in Christ, by freeing us from sin. This idea of first fruits, it comes from the early chapters of the Old Testament. Where Israel was told to have this feast, this festival at the beginning of the harvest. And what they would do is when the first harvest came, because it would kind of come in waves. When the first one came, that they would take everything that they had and they would bring it to the temple and they would offer it to God. It was a statement of thanks that God had given them any fruit at all. It was also a statement of worship. It was also a statement of confidence that God, if you have brought this, then certainly you will bring the rest. You will finish the harvest. And Paul used the same idea in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says that Christ is the first fruits. And so what he's saying is that we who have the first fruits, we are the ones who have experienced that work of Christ. That Christ, who has been raised from the dead as a, as a seal, that we too will one day be raised from the dead. And that God will use that to bring a harvest of salvation for all of us, for every person who has trusted in Christ. And the Spirit is giving us this initial fruit of glory through a transformed life, like he talked about last week and all of this groaning this is where he takes it all of this groaning is meant to produce hope see where Paul takes it that he says that hope is the result of our salvation he will even say that it was in hope that we were saved that hope is this it's not just this wishful thinking pie in the sky fantasy that we think Mike could possibly turn out but it's a confidence, it's an assurance that what God has done, He will do. What God has promised, He will bring about. And I think the reason that we struggle with this concept of hope is it's, it's, it's used in so many different ways. I mean, we've even seen it as a political slogan. We, we see it as just sort of a, a desire for something different. But we, we've We've drained it of its power. That it's we don't. When we talk about hope, we don't actually hope anymore because we think hope is just just another way to get let down. And because the challenge is, is that by definition, it's something we don't have and we don't see. It's something we want, something we desire, something that we are begging for, but we don't have it. And it's not here. And I wonder if you've heard these rule of threes. It goes like this they they teach this to survivalists and Air Force pilots, and they say you can live three weeks without food, three days without water, three hours without shelter, three minutes without air, but not three seconds without hope. That despite all of our confusion and our our trouble with understanding what what does hope look like in this world? That if we don't have it, man, we can't make it. And all of this groaning, what the Spirit is leading us to is hope. It's to recognize that, no, we can't bring ourselves to glory, but He will. That is what the Spirit is doing now in the present. Verses 26 through 27, Paul says very simply that the Spirit helps us. He helps us in our weakness. He helps us in any kind of our human frailty. It can mean sin. It can also mean just physical weakness, illness. Uh, We can be weak because we're at a loss for words. And Paul says in those moments when we're at a loss for words, that the Spirit intercedes for us, not with other words, but with groanings, longing, desire. That he takes all of those wordless prayers that we have in those moments when we find ourselves just desperately wanting something to change, wanting to see God move, wanting our, our circumstances to change, and we don't have the words, that we don't know what to say. Paul tells us the Spirit helps us The Spirit intercedes for us. And to say that the Spirit helps is like saying that it's like He rolls up His sleeves. That He bears the load. That He helps us carry it. And I I wonder if, uh, if I'm the only person who has ever struggled in prayer. Who's ever gone to pray, just ask God for help and just feel like there's no words. There's nothing there. Just a hole in the pit of my stomach. Man, I, I don't know how many times I've felt that way. I don't know how many times I've prayed, and those prayers have simply been tears, simply been groans, wanting to see something happen. I was really helped in my sermon preparation with a commentary on Romans by a, a pastor named Kent Hughes and he he described it like this, that if we're honest with ourselves, we must all admit there are times when we cannot pray. There have been times when my children were so desperately ill and the urgency so great that I could scarcely converse with God. At best, I may have said a few words, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There have been times where something has been said to us that is so devastating and we are so hurt we cannot pray. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. One day some of us will lie in hospitals with catheters and IVs and we will not have the will to pray or even put two thoughts together. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit expresses those things that we feel but cannot articulate. And Paul talking about these groanings too deep for words, that it's not just the Spirit taking our thoughts to God, but it's this conversation from God to God, that the Spirit is the one who is interceding for us, but also Christ as well, because just a few verses later, he says that Christ is the one who intercedes for us that we have both the Spirit and Christ pleading before God for us, taking all of this longing and anxious desire and bringing it to God. And so when you worry that your prayers are just hitting the ceiling, or you think that, man, maybe I'm not praying the right thing, the Spirit takes those and brings them to God. And he says that he prays these things according to the will of God. And so as we depend on the Spirit and we depend on Christ, we can be confident that our prayers are being heard according to the will of That they're just being heard, number one. And number two, that they're being heard according to the will of God. That as the Spirit works for us, He unites us to God in that way. And that if we have both Christ and the Spirit interceding for us, standing between us and God, then the ceiling can't get in the way of our prayers. The words we use can't stop God from hearing us. And in those moments when we're tempted to think that he doesn't, man, we can can be confident that God hears us, that our God hears us, that he knows what we're experiencing. And, you know... If, there's, if you are in a place, I just want to offer a piece of advice. If you are in a place where you just feel like your prayers are going nowhere, or even, man, I don't know how to pray. A good place to start is to just pray the Psalms. You can take 150, there's 150 Psalms, you can break them up. And today, today's the sixth. And so if you're just wanting to pray, but not knowing how, then go to Psalm 6. And if that's speaking what you're feeling, then pray that to God. And if not, then go another 30. Go to 36, 66, 96. It's simple. There's nothing magic to it. But in God's kindness, He has given words to us from the Spirit that we can pray back to Him. And you would be amazed. You'd be amazed as you work through the Psalms and you pray them back to God. You will find some that you will say, man, that is exactly what I'm feeling. That is exactly what I'm going through and didn't know how to put into words. And you can pray those back to God. And if you're in a place where you feel just weak in prayer, you can start there. Start with the words God has given us. And that as you, that as you pray, we, we pray that, that we won't groan forever. That that day, that today that we groan, the day is coming when that will become Glory. Because in in groaning, and this is where it really comes all to a head, that in groaning, Paul shows us the hope that we have in God. And this is where it gets tricky, is because verse 28, we have all heard, we've all said, man, that all things work together for good for those who love God. And it's so easy to say that, and it's become so familiar that, honestly, sometimes it feels trite. That when people have said that to me in certain moments, I've said, "Okay, cool, great." That doesn't, that doesn't help me, right? But you don't want to say that because it's like it's the Bible. You can't, you can't say, "Oh, this isn't helping me." But when something becomes so familiar to us, we we can we can drain it of that power, and it takes maybe having a fresh look at it, because what it sounds like Paul's saying is that man, while bad things happen. God brings it all back together in the end that he mops up the mess and it turns out okay. But what's interesting is that the force of this this word the, to work together in verse 28 that, that it really means we can also translate this as God causes all things to work together. That it's not just kind of after the fact cleanup but God is active through everything to make it good. And that's the other thing that we have trouble with, is this word good, because as we use it, it just means, okay, it's acceptable, it's good. But what he's saying here, this word that he uses, it can mean a lot of things. It can mean good, but it can also mean pleasant. It can mean noble. It can mean beautiful. And so when he's saying that God brings everything to good, works everything for good, what he's saying is he causes everything to be Beautiful he causes every circumstance to be beautiful and that he's not just mopping it up. And so it's nice and clean and sparkly at the end and puts a bow on it. But even in the very middle, that God is working these things for good. And there's an interesting story in Numbers 23 and 24, where there's this pagan king that just hates Israel. And so he hires this prophet and says, I want you to go and curse Israel because I know when you say things, they happen. So he hires this guy, and he journeys over to where Israel is, and God stops him on the way, and he said, look, man, you can curse all you want, but you can't curse who I've blessed. Go ahead and try. And four times, this prophet sets out to curse Israel, and in the very middle of his curses, they turn into blessings. And this king is becoming furious because he's obviously not getting what he paid for, right? And he's like, why do, you keep, why do you keep doing this? I paid you to curse these people. Why is this so hard? And the prophet just says to him, man, I can't, I can't curse what God has blessed. And blessing doesn't always mean that everything's great and beautiful and perfect and works out just the way we want. Because good is not in the experience of it, but it's in God's purpose for it that things become good as we see God's purposes being worked out. And for us, the purpose that God has for us, the purpose in letting us experience this groaning and this longing for glory, the purpose is to make us like Christ. Remember back at the beginning, Paul introduced this idea that, man, provided we suffer with Christ, he brings that back together, that the purpose for suffering in this life of any kind is so that we would be made like Christ, who Isaiah calls a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that as God comforts us, we are then able to comfort others in their affliction. We are able to comfort others as God has comforted us, like Christ has done for us. And so as we experience the trouble in this life, as we experience the pain and the confusion and the groaning, We understand that what is happening is God is making us like his son. He's making us like Christ. As Paul says here, that he is working all things together for good. For those whom he foreknew to be conformed to the image of his son, and here's the ultimate purpose, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That everything God is doing is meant to make us like Christ so that in that day of glory, we will stand like him, that we will be like him, and that we will be brothers like him. That everything we go through in this life is meant to push us closer to the likeness of Christ. And I, and I, I know that this is easy to accept when life is good and things are going well. Your job is great. Your relationships are great. Everything's great. But you will, you will realize faster than you ever thought possible that we, we believe in a prosperity theology when life goes to crap. When everything's taken away, you may think with your head, I don't, I don't believe that's true, but you will feel in your heart, God, why is this happening to me? I go to church, I do all these good things because we, we, don't, we don't want to suffer. We don't want to experience the groaning And we have to be careful. We have to be careful in these moments that we don't turn something beautiful and wonderful that God has given us and turn it into something trite. And so, when someone in your parish is struggling or something terrible has happened, don't just throw out verses like this and expect it to just sort of wipe away all the pain and all the struggles. Like, okay, I'm good now, it doesn't hurt anymore. Because these promises don't dull the pain. They don't dull the groan. They don't dull the suffering. But they remind us, they give us hope in the midst of it. It's like a booster shot that when we are feeling empty and I'm running out of hope, it gives me that little bit of boost. Because I know if I look at myself, man, there's not a whole lot to hope in. But if I put my hope in God, I put my, my trust for strength in God. And he will help me. He will be my hope. He will be my confidence. He will be my strength. And what Paul explains here in these, these, this last verse, that those he, he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. What he's getting at is he's saying, God finishes what he starts that no one's going to slip off the rails on this, that if he has called you, if he has made you right in Christ, then you will make it to glory. That as we sang, Lord, prone to wander, I, that one always gets me because I know it's more true than anything else. I'm prone to wander, but God won't, won't let me go too far. He won't let me lose my way forever. He'll bring me back. And I don't, man, I don't know where you guys are right now. I don't know what's going on in your lives. Maybe things you've shared or maybe things you haven't shared. But I can tell you there is hope in God. That if God has said, I will free you from your sin, he will do it. If God has said, I am working in you and you are my child, You are. And in these moments when we're tempted to think, man, this doesn't apply to me, or I'm, maybe those people have hope, but I sure don't. And we do what we've always done. We lean on the Spirit and we beg Him, please fill me up where I'm lacking. Restore my hope so that I can persevere. You know, and in, in joining Marshall, in this work of planning a church in Montrose, you guys have done a risky thing. You guys have been bold to trust God and step out, to allow your parishes to multiply, to, to step out of the comfort of a more established church and just to be a part of this work. You've done a risky thing. And there may be moments in your life, in this church's life, where you are tempted to think, man, let's just wrap it up, forget it. This is too hard. But as believers, as parishes, as a church, be committed to reminding each other to find your hope in God. To hope in God. Because if a God can bring my dead soul to life, then he can do innumerable wonderful unexpected things they simple people who proclaim a simple gospel and god is already at work he's already been working here and i know that he has been working in each of i know he's working on me and we can celebrate that we can celebrate the man it doesn't it doesn't depend on me it's not in my strength but it's in the god who not only has called me and saved me and justified me, but the God who dwells within me and prays for me. Through and through, this is a work of God. And so what we experience now in the present, this groaning that it's, it's the soul's compost. It's God taking all the junk of our life and turning it into something beautiful that brings life to others so even though it might be hard even though there might be challenges that find your rest and your hope in him remind each other of that be willing to embrace what God is doing in us because in the end in the end as Paul will tell us man it's all worth it he starts out by saying all suffering we experience in this life it doesn't even compare he's not brushing it away Basically, he's saying, I've made a detailed, itemized list, and it's not even fair. We may not see it, we may not know it, but it's coming. That day we're longing for, that day we groan for, when it will finally be silenced and every tear wiped away, that we'll see God was faithful. Let's pray together.